All right, this morning, uh, as always, you can follow along with me in your own Bibles if you brought them with you, or uh, our text for the sermon is printed in your bulletins. We're looking this morning at 1 Samuel chapter 18. I'm continuing to read from where I left off uh, last week. Uh, And just as a reminder, uh, this is the second of two sermons that I'm going to do from 18 to 20. So if you would like to read more of the details in 19 and 20, uh, please do that. But I think Uh, Two sermons kind of help us to get the feel of that section of Scripture. So uh, I'm only going to read from 18 this morning, but I think you'll get a feel for the rest of it as we move along. Last week, as we ended chapter 17 and we peeked into uh, 18 and then following, what we saw is that as David grows to prominence as a result of the victory over Goliath, we see that there are people who begin to love him as a result of that. And in particular last week, we saw that with Jonathan, who enters into covenant with David, a deep covenant of friendship. But it's not only Jonathan. It's also Michal, uh, Saul's daughter, who loves David and marries him in chapter 18. And then we, we have this comment written here, that all of Israel and all of Judah esteemed David and loved David as well. So there's a lot of acceptance of David, but, and this is what we run into in our text today, this is not, this love is not as universal as it may seem. And in particular, we see the opposition to David arise in the person of Saul, and we'll consider that with, uh, with that focus today. Uh, well, could it be said of this particular portion of Scripture that uneasy lies the head that wears the crown? Saul was not sleeping easy in these days. This was a hard time for him. This is the living word of God then. Give your attention to it, beginning at verse 6, continuing through 16. You know what? I'm sorry. I said verse 6. That's what's in your bulletin. I want to read verse 5 just to give you where we left off last week. So starting at 5. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home... When David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, As he did day by day, Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. 
So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Now I'm going to pick it up at verse 28 in the intervening section. Uh, Saul has married, uh, Saul, David has married Michal, Saul's daughter. And then we're picking it up here at verse 28. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed, a sign opposed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word, and we pray that you would help us to esteem your name, and that you would help us to love you, to love our king. And that as a result of looking at this ancient text today, you would help us to examine our own hearts. Lord, our desire today is not only for a history lesson, although the living history of your people is our history, but it is to see our lives and our hearts and our minds changed as a result of encountering you and your word. So Spirit of God, now be at work in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. From the moment that our Lord came into the world, there were those who loved him and those who sought to take his life. You know that. You know that from the Christmas stories that we read every year, that that was true almost from the moment of his birth. Those who sought to honor and worship him as the anointed king, as the Christ, and those who, on the other hand, felt threatened by him, felt threatened by who he was or who people said he was, and therefore, in their supposed threats, they opposed him. They wanted to get rid of him. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, as we call it. Many hailed his arrival. However fickle they may have been in that moment, they hailed his arrival. They celebrated the arrival of the king, but others not so much. In fact, we read that the Pharisees at that point said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. The whole world has gone after him. In other words, you're not getting anything out of this deal. There's a threat to your position, to your power, to your influence, to your authority. Everybody's following after him. Those are almost the exact words that could apply to the text that we read today. Everybody's following after him, and Saul feels threatened. Now, all of this that I've talked about with our Lord Jesus was a fulfillment of what Simeon had said to Mary and Joseph, a verse that I quoted last week for us, and one that this week I decided to put 
on the front of your bulletins. When he held Jesus in his arms, he said, this child is appointed for the rise and the falling of many in Israel. The child is appointed as a sign that is opposed. Opposed. Not everybody is going to find this child, and this child as he grows into a man, to be one that they're in favor of. Hearts will be revealed by how they respond to that child. It's a revelation of what is going on inside of us. But long before Simeon said those words, long before they were fulfilled in the life of our Lord, they were anticipated. They were foreshadowed in the life of David. And so here's what I want to ask today. A couple of questions of this text. First of all, what is it that is a sign opposed? What does that mean? What's, what's the sign that is opposed? Secondly, I want to ask, what is the glaring sin in this passage? Okay, we, we, in this whole section, it really stands out to us. So I want to look at the glaring sin that is here. And then finally, what are the lessons for us? So first of all, then, what is the opposition? What is this sign opposed? And of course, as you heard the text, you'll know that the, the opposition, uh, the sign opposed, all starts kind of innocently enough with a song. It's, it's just a little ditty that is being sung by the women as Saul and presumably David as well, and the armies are coming back after victories. They're trying to celebrate. They're just trying to rejoice in what God has done, in the deliverance that they have experienced. Now, uh, Ralph Davis calls this a little country song. And he said, a little country song can sometimes change things. And this one is going to become a billboard bestseller in, or, or, or a billboard top hit in the region for years to come. It's going to get referenced several times, not only in Israel, but in Philistia as well. So, so think of it this way. Were you ever in a situation where there were two of you together and, and somebody comes in to make a comment and they make a comment that you kind of know that comment was well-intended, that they had good intent as they came in and said something, but it hit the wrong note. It, it, it just was slightly off-key, and instead of the well-intended uh, encouragement that the words might have otherwise been, these well-meant words become something that pierce deeply. That's what happens here. This little song is the trigger. It gets the ball rolling. And this little song, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands, awakens a deep, ugly part of the heart of Saul. Perhaps it made him recall and remember the dreadful words from Samuel that were said to him a few years before. Back in chapter 15, Samuel said to him, that is Samuel said to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. <laughs> Those are haunting words. I, I mean, you can imagine 
There, there, there are lots of words in our lives that we forget. They don't stick with us. We don't remember them. They're gone uh, 10 minutes after they are said to us. There are other words that hit us right between the eyes and stick with us. And I imagine that when somebody says that to you, the kingdom's going to be torn away from you, given to your neighbor who is better than you. You don't forget it. And I suspect, as I would be, as you would be, Saul was troubled by those words over the years. That over the years, he thought, who are we talking about here? Who are we talking about? And I'm going to keep an eye out. I'm going to look for that one, the one who is going to come, the one who is, quote, unquote, better than me. It's a fateful day. And so Saul hears this song, and, and he sees David, and he thinks about what's going on. And now, and now, what was imagined before kind of crystallizes. The, the picture gets filled in, whatever you want to say. The dots get connected, and it's this person, this David, who is kind of marching in with him. And he goes, right, okay. This is probably the one that Samuel was talking about. If you recall, uh, when Israel was requesting a king back earlier in 1 Samuel, there were, were a variety of reasons for which they wanted a king. But one of the main ones was that they wanted a king who would go out and fight their battles for them, right? And Saul does that initially. He goes out and fights their battles. But now, now, there's a better champion and a perceived better champion, someone who fights Israel's battles better than Saul. And it displeased him. Verse 8, Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And then the song again, what more can he have but the kingdom? So there we have it. From that day on, David is the sign opposed. Uh, verses 9 and 29 summarize not only this section that I'm considering for us this morning, but really the rest of the book of 1 Samuel as well. Verse 9, and Saul eyed David from that day on. And verse 29, Saul was even more afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy continually. That's what marks the rest of this book, that story, that simple statement. He eyed him and he was his enemy for the rest of his life. From this point on, David, or pardon me, Saul, will try to kill David or to have David killed. It was true for David, and it was true for David's Lord and our Lord. Think of how many times they tried to kill Jesus. Now, I've already mentioned what took place in the birth narratives, but think of the fact that in as early as Luke chapter 4, when he begins his public ministry, they seek to kill him immediately after that. They seek to take him up to a cliff and push him off of the cliff to kill him. And the same is true for David as well. Now, the most obvious efforts of Saul, uh, of course, are right before us here, is his tendency to uh, hurl spears at people who are close to him, at people whom he perceives to be a threat in his life. We see that in 18. It's a little bit hard to know exactly. It looks like in 18 here, the spear was thrown twice. 
David evaded him twice as he threw the spear. In chapter 19, another spear, this, well, the same spear, is thrown once again at David. And in chapter 20, the spear is hurled at Jonathan at that point. So Saul has a tendency to do this. It's pretty clear. It's not very subtle. But it's something that could be ascribed to Saul's fits of madness. Right? And we talked about that a while ago, and I'm not going to go into depth in it uh, in this round of First uh, Samuel. But Saul was subject to this, and we know this. He was subject to these fits uh, where an evil spirit came upon him and drove him mad and essentially caused things like this to take place. But in addition to that, we see some subtle or more subtle efforts on the part of Saul to kill David as well, or to have David killed. In other words, not sending him out with all the army, but limiting a little bit, sending him into battles where it might be that David would be killed, or conversely, uh, requiring a bride price. And this is later in 18. I'm not going to read it for you. Warning that it's rated uh, PG-13 for your children. But requiring a bridal price that would put David in harm's way and Saul figures, well, maybe that is a way to take care of him. So there's subtlety, but as the story moves on, it becomes official policy to kill David. 19.1, by, by that point, and Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. Okay? Kill him. That's what I want to be done. And then later in chapter uh, 20, verse 31, speaking again to Jonathan, for as long, this is Saul speaking to Jonathan, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Now, of course, the irony here, the sad irony for Saul, the good irony for the purposes of God and for God's people, is that every effort that Saul makes to kill David, to remove David, to diminish David in some way, it backfires on him. And so as a result, you have Saul's son and Saul's daughter who love David and not only love him, but are in covenantal relationship with him the covenant of friendship with Jonathan, and the covenant of marriage with Michal. And, and when, when you're the one who has that person as an enemy, and the two people, your children, are in covenant and in love with that person, that's a tough spot to be in. But it reverses what Saul's intentions were. And every time he tries to send him into some situation where he'll be defeated, Saul has more success in battles, and his name is highly esteemed. And Saul's hatred of David reveals what is presented to us as the underlying theme of this entire book. It's the truth that governs the entire book, and it is the truth that was repeated three times in what I read to you this morning, and that is simply that the Lord was with David. Listen to it again from 18, from verse 12. This is the, the summary statement. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Verse 14, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord 
was with him. Verse 28, but when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David. Don't make the mistake. Don't miss the point of what is being said here. Why was David successful? David was successful because the Lord was with him, and Saul got it. And Saul saw the reality of this situation. And so Saul, the more he pursues after David, the deeper he digs his own grave. The deeper he is exposed to the reality of his rejection by God and the protection of God that rests upon David as the anointed one. David is the sign that is opposed. So what's the glaring sin that is here in this passage? And in asking now, what is the glaring sin in this passage? I hope that we're hitting something here that will lie a little bit closer to our own lives, our own hearts, than perhaps the political intrigue of ancient Israel. What, what is being presented to us here as that which is at the heart of what's wrong. Now, we could accuse Saul of attempted murder of the Lord's anointed, of, of his, his uncontrolled anger and wrath, of his evil plots. We could see that those things were wrong in what Saul did. But really, what those things are, those are the, those, those are the rotten fruit that hang from the tree of Saul's life. And, and, and what I want us to ask is, what's at the root? What's at the heart of this problem that Saul is experiencing? Because this is often the way things work. We see, or we ourselves, do things, and, and we do things or things come out of our mouths that we know are wrong. We know that they're an offense against God, we know that they're an offense against our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we know that this very thing that we're about to do is self-destructive as well. And we see it, and we look at the thing itself, whatever that thing is, whatever that end product is, and we think to ourselves, I shouldn't do end product, whatever that particular sin is that you might be thinking of right now. Instead of looking at what's causing that, why am I doing that? What's, what's at the heart of me? What's at the root of me that is causing this particular problem to spring forth? But then, by God's grace, and we can see it in this text, through the Word, by the working of the Holy Spirit, we come to see that the issue isn't the behavior. It is, in fact, something else, something deeper, something more subtle, something oftentimes more intractable. So what is it here? What is the thing in this passage? Well, the two things, or one thing, however you want to frame them, that are at the heart of Saul's problem here are envy and jealousy. Envy and jealousy, as simple as that. Now, I'm sure that if we were able to confront Saul and say, Saul, Saul, for a moment, could you just understand that David isn't your problem? David isn't the problem here. The problem is your envy and jealousy. How do you think that would have gone? 
I think you got a, you would have got a spear thrown at you for at, at that particular moment from Saul. But let's say that you ducked, you dodged the spear, and Saul continued to speak. I'm sure Saul would have played all sorts of games to explain to us why we were wrong, why it would be petty of you to think that envy and jealousy would be characteristic of him, the king. Who should I be envious or jealous of? He would have said, I'm not envious or jealous. I'm just trying to protect the kingdom. I'm just trying to secure the future of my son. I am, in fact, the one who has been anointed by Samuel the prophet. I'm really defending kingship here. Now, you look at David, and, and, and you think you love David. Well, listen, David may be handsome. David may be strong. David may be successful, but he's a traitor. He's a usurper. He is after my kingdom. He is after my crown. Don't be fooled by that guy. He could say all those things. He can protest. But at the end of the day, what the scripture allows us to see is it is envy and jealousy in Saul that is driving him to the actions that he takes. Saul was envious of what David has. His success, the acclaim, the esteem, the love of the people, the love of Saul's own children. He wanted that and he was envious of that. And Saul was jealous. Saul was jealous. He sees the writing on the wall. Now, I use that phrase intentionally. The writing on the wall, of course, is a phrase that would come to us from the book of Daniel, happening 500 years after this one. But the message of the writing on the wall and the message to Saul are nearly identical. Nearly identical. The kingdom is going to be taken away from you, and it's going to be given to another. And Saul is jealous that David is going to take away that which he understands, unfortunately, as his. This is mine. I'm jealous of the idea of you taking it from me. Envy and jealousy eat Saul alive. And while those two sins, envy and jealousy, are old sins, they are alive and well in the world and may be lurking in your own heart this morning. Many times, the writers of the New Testament pick up on those two things to confront the people of God and to say to them, are these things at work in you? Are these things lurking in your heart? Envy and jealousy. The scriptures say, put away envy. Let us not provoke one another or envy one another. Envy and jealousy. It's a problem for adults. It's a problem for moms and dads. It's a problem for seminarians and young people. It's a problem for you as well. It's a problem for you as you look at your schoolmates, as you look at others, as you look at your brothers and sisters, you look at people and you see their abilities and you see their success. 
You see their favor with other people. You look at the way other people seem to have more friends or the friends that you would like to have, and you don't have those same friends. You look at the way a conversation exists, and you can't work your way into that conversation to that particular table. You look at someone else's body, someone else's looks, someone's health, or someone else's clothes. You look at their marriage or the simple fact that they are married. We look at their kids, their car, their circumstances, their situations, and pernicious envy bites you and then barks at those who are around you. Is that true of you? Be careful. Be careful not to deny it too quickly. Saul would have denied it. Not true of me. He would have dismissed it. Pastor must be talking to somebody else because he's not talking to me right now. Envy is a failure of love. It's a failure of love. How significant is envy? Well, right at the beginning of a definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, it does not envy. Love doesn't envy. Even Pilate could recognize envy when he saw it. Pilate recognized that the reason that Jesus was before him was not actually because of anything wrong that Jesus had done, but because the chief priests and the scribes were envious. They were envious of Jesus. They were envious of his influence. They were envious of his ability to teach as one who had authority. Envy is a failure of thankfulness. It's a failure of thankfulness for how God works in other people's lives. Envy is a failure of contentment for how God works in us. Envy is a failure of faith because it's a failure to trust in the good plans and the purposes of God. And James warns us of the corrosive powers of jealousy saying to us, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Envy and jealousy will give birth to those things, and sin has lots of connections, and it has lots of tentacles, and we can see those all throughout 1 Samuel. This envy and this jealousy are going to manifest themselves in all sorts of ways, but Saul is devoured by envy and by jealousy as he opposed the Lord's anointed. Let it be a warning. Let it be a warning. So what are the lessons for us? I'm going to give you four lessons to conclude, and don't worry, they're not long. Lesson number one from this passage, from these ideas, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when people don't like you or are opposed to you for being a Christian, for believing what you believe, don't be surprised. Jesus said that if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Opposition to the anointed one and the ones who follow the anointed one should not catch you off guard. 
Don't be surprised that it comes. Now, listen. If people hate you because you're arrogant and because you're rude and because you are spiteful and because instead of holding a conviction or a belief, you express it to beat people over the head, if they hate you because you've welded this into an entire system that doesn't look like the scriptures but looks like you've got everything figured out and right in this world, that's on you. That's not on Christ. That's on you if they hate you for those reasons. But if they hate you because of Christ in you, because of the truth of the word of God, well, then that's on Christ. That's on Christ. He wears that hatred on our behalf. Learn the lessons of 1 Samuel when people say all kinds of mean things about you. What are the lessons of 1 Samuel when they say all kinds of things about you? Duck. Duck. When a spear gets hurled at you, move out of the way. Dodge. Dodge the situation. Or if you need to confront, if this is a situation that you can't duck, that you can't dodge, then bring up the shield of faith. Bring up the shield of faith when darts get hurled at you and respond with the sword of the Spirit, with the word of God. Don't be surprised. Second, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid when people are opposed to you. Jonathan will come to David and say, do not fear. Do not fear. I'm preaching on that one tonight. Jonathan coming to David. The Lord protects and he defends his people. And Jonathan essentially says to David, David, stand firm. Pursue your calling in the Lord. Stand firm and he will protect you. And David, he will protect you body and soul. And we, we like David, have seen God's protection in our lives. We've seen it, body and soul. But of course, of far greater importance is the eternal protection of your body and soul secured by the death and resurrection of Jesus, our champion. So don't be afraid. Third application, do be bold. Do be bold. Love the king, no matter what the cost is no matter the cost. Speak of the king, no matter what the cost is. And, and, and really, this is why I wanted us to read that Acts 4 chapter uh, earlier in the service. Because there we see them equating this opposition to the Lord's anointed, to the opposition that David had experienced, to the opposition that Christ experienced, to the opposition that they are now experiencing. And the prayer that they leave that whole thing with is that the Lord would keep them bold, that the Lord would allow them to continue to speak, to continue to believe, to continue to proclaim the good news of the word of God. Do be bold. And finally, I'll close with this. The call of this passage is to guard your heart. Search it out. Look deep in your heart. Take some time this afternoon. Take a little bit of a walk. Get a little bit of quiet time. And ask yourself where jealousy and envy are lurking in your heart. You may get a sense of where they are by feeling bitterness. If you trace the line of bitterness, you may get a sense of where the envy and the jealousy lies within you. Listen to this proverb. 
Proverbs 14.30. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, produces good fruit, but envy makes the bones rot. Fight for it. Fight for the tranquil heart. And may the Lord deliver you from opposing the king and give you a tranquil heart that loves him. Father, we pray that you would indeed work those things into us in deep in our lives. Jesus, we thank you for your victory, your victory over the grave, a shared victory now with us, your people. And we pray in particular as we close with a proverb, a proverb that illustrates the passage that was before us today, that you would give us a tranquil, tranquil heart, that where there is in us envy and jealousy, you would show it to us by your word, by your spirit, and maybe if necessary by the comment of another, so that we see it, and so that we can begin the good process of putting it to death, that we might rest in you. Lord, you are our king, and we love you, and we pray in your name.